Today, my guest is Paul Morton. He's the founder of the Practical Leadership Academy. And I'm going to ask Paul to introduce himself in a moment. But what we're going to be exploring today are some of the blind spots that leadership has. We're going to be exploring some of the areas that maybe if their imagination was opened up, then these could be game-changing areas that they could question and create real transformational change instead of the lip service stuff that we're quite used to in corporate, where we make a change and then there's a bet on for when this too will pass for the next fad. And normally the next time the CEO gets drunk with the, uh, the salesperson. So, Paul, welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Marcus. Thank you. Excellent. Would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your history, please, before we get back into the meat of all of this? Well, my mummy and daddy met each other. No, that's a bit too far. <laughs> I've been knocking around business and uh, industry for about 25 years, mostly with learning. I was working as a digital learning company. So my background has this lovely confluence of dealing with training, learning, education, business, uh, individual transformation, as well as being a leader of men and women over time. And most recently, what I've been doing is a lot of consultancy and a lot of coaching with people trying to get them to dig into the stuff that actually works. The basics, the heart of the matter, asking them stupid, stupid questions. Because you can, because you're not working there, you don't really care. <laughs> Asking them these really stupid questions is, what do you sell? How do you make, and all those ones, how do you make money? And discover, helping them to discover that they don't know. And the reason they don't know is because they've never asked. But not actually because they've never asked because they didn't want to. It's just never, nobody's ever told them to. And that something like 98% of people who have any sort of management job that I've discovered over the last years haven't been trained on it. Or if they have, they need more. So for the last many years, I've been taking lots of training courses, leadership courses. I've been studying hard. I've been talking to lots of different people. And it's uh, as a revenue architect, as a leadership coach and consultant, I think our job, my job, is to try and leave the world a little bit better than I found it. Well, what do you mean by a revenue architect for those people who've not come across that term before? Oh, it's a wonderful term. I've, I, I stole it from the amazing guys at Winning by Design. If you haven't come across them, you should definitely look them up, Winning by Design. And I did a, a fabulous session with them a few years ago now on how do you structure revenue as a function? What does that actually mean? How does money come in, flow through, and out of your organization? So I've been helping organizations as a revenue architect as well, looking at who their buyers are, what it is they're selling, how do they make money, how do they spend it, what are the unit economics, all that sort of stuff as well. Okay. So tell me this. You work with leaders regularly. What are the most common blind spots that you see that they may have inherited or they may have developed over the years, but they're repeated time and time again, and we should be aware of them, particularly nowadays where there's so much uh, fluidity in terms of uh, people moving jobs, you need to be really careful about the organizations that you're going into and you want to go into the right ones. So what are the blind spots that you should be looking for? Because Datadog today, I believe, just let go another 26% of their staff in sales. And there's probably another 25% to go soon after if they don't follow on. I think that there are a few big ones. I think that the 
if I had to pick three big ones, I would say time management. Really, it's simple. It's really simple as that. It's not making the most effective use of your time. You only have a little, you have a finite number of heartbeats and people spend them all the wrong place. Right. So is that really a matter of time management? Because I think there's a problem with the misnomer here because it's not about managing time. It's about prioritizing and ensure that what you say no to matters more than what you say yes to. Absolutely. I think it's what you say no to defines defines who you are as much as uh, what you say yes to. So I think it's that. I think the second thing is in any management job, the default is the job you had before that one. So it's, well, I was really successful as a finance guy, and now I've been promoted to the head of finance. But I'm going to keep on doing that stuff because I was really good at it. And And not stopping. Yeah. Uh, Under pressure, you revert back to what you learned first. Exactly. Ah. So under pressure, you go back to where you were successful. And also not realizing that it's not your job to do things anymore. It's your job to get things done. That's the big one. Yeah. And then I think lastly, when you come to individuals, it's sometimes giving up into giving up in people too early, especially if you've inherited a team. You look around you and say, oh, they're all rubbish. I would hire completely differently. Giving up in people too early. And the corollary of that is when you recognize that there is a problem with an individual, whether it's the wrong fit for the job or the wrong, wrong job for the fit, it's not making a decision. And that sends such a terrible message to everybody else. Oh. Because they end up carrying that person in one way or another. They may be a time suck. Because, not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. It's, it's, uh, and they, they will then re- be resentful. And they will then look for that person to fail. It can create conflict. Or you can just create flight risks. And you don't need them. And the, the evidence on this is really very clear. The PhD paper by Phil McGowan for his doctorate in selling made it very clear that salespeople hit their stride somewhere in year three, around, I think it's month four or month six. That's when they really hit their full stride. Now, you look at the turnover in sales teams today, certainly within technology, they're turning over way faster than that. 18 Um, months. If that. If that. I look on LinkedIn and routinely, uh, when I was uh, hiring earlier this year, people had one year, one year, one year, one year, eight months, one year, seven months, one year. And, and you, they, can nothing, you can't find out where the toilets are in a year. Exactly. I mean, I used to, I used to say it was 18 months not found out. When for, for, for sales specifically, because it is so measurable. It's so measurable. Most other roles are not as brutal as sales. They're not as measurable as sales. You can't see, have you been successful or not? Well, I delivered this program. We looked at these objectives. We did these things here. Have you been delivered, successful or not, Mrs. Salesperson? I hit my number. Next person. I hit my number. Next person. I didn't hit my number. Out the door. And that's brutal. It it is. And it's misguided. Ah, okay. I'm glad we ended up there. Yes. (laughs) We're about to misguided. It's it's misguided. (laughs) Again, I think there, there is a throwaway culture in sales because we seem to accept that massively high failure rates are the norm 
so the idea of hiring 10 in the hopes that three work out a year and five's two. My God, what a waste of human capital. What a waste of money. What a waste of my time and my energy. A decent coach. I can get an average Joe to become a decent coach in about three, four hours, but simply by walking through two dozen decent questions with them. Really. And taking those fundamental skills, taking those that, You've got models at the grow model, for goodness sake. It's been out forever. Just use the damn thing. Here's half a dozen questions. Ask them. You don't even have to pay attention to yourself while you're asking them. Coaching is mostly about awareness for the other person. And pretend to be a good coach, even if you're not. And the other person will experience that for themselves. (laughs) Ideally, practice and become a good coach. But fake that and you'll see huge improvements in the office. And th- this is where I think there's a huge trick being missed. And uh, there's a guy out there, Ben Eddy, who's created an app called um, Mobile Practice. And one of the best things about it is the ability for the leader to shadow coach the manager. Now, being able to act as their wingman and help them and give them feedback on their, li- their actual coaching sessions, I it's just brilliant. Well, what a fantastically insightful leap of perception to realize how potent that could be if only senior leadership coached their managers. Because more often than not, that doesn't happen. And there was a study that Jonathan Farrington did before he died. I think it was in about 2020. And 83% of managers surveyed were convinced they were coaching. Yet only 17% of of the people being managed by the same managers believe they were being coached. So there's a huge discrepancy because there is a difference between telling and mm. So Sorry, you're, you're telling. You have the, the, the command and control piece, which is, do you know what? To some aspects, I think I would rather be told what to do than ignored. I'd yeah. rather have some interaction than nothing. <laughs> but there's the, there's the, you have the, the decent coach in the middle. And I'm not talking phenomenal, educated, certified. I'm just talking somebody who can ask a few questions and listen to the bloody answers. And then you have the command and control on one side, and you have the utter and absolute abrogation (laughs) of responsibility. We're going over here. Let me know when you're done. That's just Uh, hell. There's a lovely thing I came across called tight, loose, tight, which is brilliant. You're tight about what you want done. You're loose about how they go about doing it. You're tight about the follow-up. Problem solved. Very nice. I should be stealing that. You will get credit once. Please do. Oh, I stole it from somebody else. <laughs> well, there you go. It's only fair. Very interesting. So if we look at the way we recruit managers, I'm very interested in your take on this. When you look at the best managers, very often they struggle to get into management. I look at guys like Tom Shodorf. I look at leaders who really bring their people up, elevate them. They more often than not got there in spite of not being top performing salespeople. That's the rare trait because we, we inherently hire as a leader or a manager the person who is best at the job. And what's wrong with that? They're not, it goes back to one of my big points big blindside points, which is the best person at the job was really good at it. So what do they keep doing? They keep doing their job 
and they don't go into the different step. They, they don't stop doing their job because they were successful at it. Right. And the people who are best at leading are, they burn for the success of other people. They burn for the success of other people rather than themselves, more so than themselves. And they value what you could otherwise think of as the noise, as the annoyance, the nuisance of answering, answering questions, the nuisance of having to be there for other people, rather than seeing that as the essence of the role itself, the heart and soul of it. That's really sweet. I like that a lot. Very nice. Okay, I think we're done then. Problem solved. Problem solved. Okay. Tell me about a victory you wouldn't want to repeat. A victory I wouldn't want to repeat. Yeah. Possibly my second promotion. Go on. Um, (laughs) This this has the makings of a good story, judging by your coloration and facial expression. (laughs) I'm feeling embarrassed about it. My second promotion. The first one I got from chance because my boss quit. Right. Quit was was he he was quit so hard as the door didn't hit his arse on the way out. <laughs> um second one I got, I didn't lie, I didn't cheat, I don't lie, I didn't cheat, I didn't steal, but it felt like it. You didn't feel worthy. I, I wasn't worthy. All right, okay. <laughs> no, there's a difference between I mean, I I, I recognize the imposter syndrome, I recognize the symptoms of that. I help people with that. But genuinely, I had no damned clue. I was no business doing that role. Uh, but we alluded by the to, idea that you might be able to. Yeah, I thought, I'll grow into it. I can do this. I'm 20-something stupid. And I knew it at the time, and I know it still now. 20-something <laughs> stupid, I like that. Yes. And in order to get it, I uh, didn't cover myself with glory in the process by competing against another chap and no I mean the the list of people that I should apologize to (laughs) in the learning process of my career is fairly lengthy and many of them I don't know the names of and I've inadvertently (laughs) crapped all over them uh, as we go through this life learning things and making all these mistakes this one was almost on purpose and no it it was it was that sounds to me like that was really formative in terms of your values. Uh, Dan Pink says that regret is really a strong indicator of values. So what values have you picked up along the way as a result of those infractions on other people's lives? I think you can either have your values living or you can have them laminated. I've worked for companies where you get a little laminated pouch and you shut them down. And people say, oh, these are our values. And you say, no, they're not. They're not. My values come from my mum. They come from the church. They come from life, society. And if you had to name them, I think they're almost behavioural because you should use them as decision-making tools. Otherwise, why do you have them at all? You use them to say, I I will or I will not do this. I will or I will not behave in this way. And I think if I had to point to things that were valuable to me, they would be integrity. Just do what you're going to do, what you say you're going to do. Don't lie. Just don't lie, ever. If you, if you can't tell the truth, then say nothing. But you can't, you can't ever lie because there's the one thing you can't ever come back to. And then 
I think be curious. Curiosity is a value. Is that a value? I suppose. Well, I think it is. It's it's being curious about the world, being curious about other people, being curious about yourself. And the way that you feed that hunger, and it is a hunger, really, is by listening, by learning, by reading, by studying, by asking stupid questions, and by listening to the answers. And asking stupid questions about yourself as well. How did I do? What did you think? You know, well, what would you do? What, what would you advise me to do differently? Asking for that all the time. And lots of people don't like things like feedback and stuff because you just you don't think it's a nice word. I like insights or observations. You got any observations on uh, that conversation we just had there, uh, Marcus? What would you what would you say about that? I'll give you some feedback. It was rubbish. My observations were that you spoke far too quickly, or whatever. <laughs> so curiosity, integrity. Ah, uh, they'll they'll do stuff. They're really solid ones. So how how then? In fact, I've got a better question because I'm really curious about something, uh, and I'm going to bring you back to your squirmy moment for a moment, if I may. I was on a call recently with uh, one of the communities that we're, we're building, Sales of Force for Good, and uh, we were looking at uh, the whole subject of neuromarketing. And Moeed Amin, who was the principal running the call, uh, said that there are six human needs, and where there are two of them that are not being satisfied, they will override your values. And so the first one is a need for certainty. The second is a need for significance, which I think from what you're describing was certainly correct. The need for novelty or the the awareness of novelty, both for variety and uncertainty, because the thalamus is triggered by surprising or interesting and novel, loud or different stuff. So it's looking for that because it may be a threat, uh, but it may also be an opportunity. Another one is connection. Then the deeper one is love. And the next one is contribution. And Again, I'm really curious because often we find that certainly in our earlier years, we spend our life judging and making judgments on the basis of very incomplete information. And one of my best lessons, which Moeed has reinforced here and said much more succinctly, is that you cannot judge and influence at the same time. And I think that really pays uh, very neatly into your point that you have to have that hunger to listen. So I'm curious, which of your human needs were not being met that caused you to override those values? It may be that that's a more extensive list. At that point, I think it was significance and contribution, possibly even certainty. The company at the time was going through all sorts of fluctuations. It was just after the dot-com shenanigans. Ah, right. Yeah. And we'd hired at that point where we started out a thousand people company having gone public in NASDAQ. Mm. And then they managed to spaff away 100 million quid. (laughs) And we went from 1,000 people down to about 150 in the course of about 35 minutes. I I remember reading um, a book called Dangerous Company by Charlie Madigan. And there was this, it's just a litany of stories of how the big four, big six killed companies. And there was one Figgy International that had been grown from nothing to 300 million handed over to the son who brought KPMG in to turn it into a world-class business. And in three years, it went from 300 million to 30 million, or was it 3 million? And yeah, you, you yes. just blows your mind 
that people will then stay hooked on the bad bet. To lose 90 or you know, even 99% of your value over three years, somewhere early, there must have been an alarm bell. You'd think. But you make a bet and you stick with it. It's the, it's the wonderful um, uh, sensation of consistency, isn't it? You know, we have to be consistent with our decisions. I'm consistent with this. So, uh, so this is consistency versus sunk loss, isn't it? No, totally. Ah, right. Okay. So tell me this then, because I'm sure this will be instructive. What were the contexts that framed your beliefs about leadership today? What were the, what were the moments that brought all your thinking together? I think it's a... I'm trying to, I'm struggling for the right word. It's not disaffectation. That's a bit too long in points. It's a falling out of belief of the fluff. I mean, I used to be very fluffy. And 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 we talk about being values driven and all that, but getting older, getting down to the heart of the thing that there are just a few core things that we have to do and do well. There are just a few things we need to understand starting with ourselves, and if you get them right, if you even get them not badly wrong, I think it makes our lives and everyone around our lives better. So the context, screwing up repeatedly. <laughs> repeatedly. So what were your best And then trying to learn from the mistakes. It's, it's, so what were your best lessons? My best lessons? Yeah. I think my, my, my first real manager only met him maybe, what, 12 years ago or something like that, 10, 10 12 years ago. My first real manager wow. was somebody who actually introduced me to managing and leading people as a job rather than as something you do with. Because up until that point, I'd been kind of player, coach, that sort of thing. And he said, oh, you can't do that. It just doesn't work. And he introduced me to the fact that you this is a practice. This is a, a job in itself. There are, there's an art, there's a science to this. And I was thinking, what do you mean? Like going and doing an MBA and becoming, you know, finance? He said, no, 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 people. Now, I, I'm going to interrupt for a second because I think you've just touched on a really lovely concept, which instead of having a management team, why not have a management practice? Yeah. It's conceptually, it's a lovely shift. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to build on that. Okay. Yeah. There's a thing there. It is exactly that. It is that. It feeds very neatly into things like um, your number one team. So your number one team is your peer group, not your silo. So let's say you are the, the head of finance or the head of the sales team. You think that your job is to represent that team, and it's not. That's the way that you build silos and division. The way that your job is to build a business and an organization together with your peers, the people who are at your level, other leaders, they have to be the ones that you work with most closely. And that's, that's the, the key differentiator. That's your practice group. Right. So if you we champion you work who you're working for, you can champion them, sure, but you are in a management practice. This is really interesting because the way I uh, tend to divide management functions up are if you divide a page up into quadrants and you have a box in the middle. So it's box in the middle and then four boxes around the outside. And in the top left, it's doing. Then it's deciding, sorry, delegating. Then deciding in the bottom right. Bottom left is design. 
and in the middle, coaching. In design, that's building the bench. That's having five to seven good, solid candidates who want the job, who can do the job. You've done the predictive hiring on them. You've agreed upfront, and it takes you a month to fill the vacancy, uh, which is their notice period. And that's it, or three months. Uh, You don't have to wait 16 weeks and then suffer the notice period and all the vagaries of that. Uh, So you don't lose time. You're designing good systems and processes. So you're automating the stuff that should be automated. You're not automating the stuff that shouldn't. That shouldn't. (laughs) And that is really important. And you're putting in place the systems and the processes and the structure and the governance and the accountability so that people can do their job without friction and they can do their job well and they can do it effectively. The delegating and the deciding, the more of that you push down the chain of command, the more time you have to build the bench and to coach instead of doing, which is the thing that band managers, you know, player, player managers, 80% of their time in doing. It's insane. Hmm. So we've got to break that pattern. Now, if I look at that model that you were talking about there, one of the things that you need to be spending your time in as a manager is cooperating with the people whose work is impacted by your team's work and also by the people who upstream affect your team's output. And you don't see them as an enemy. You see them as allies, and you're working towards creating as little friction for the customer as possible. So it's easy for them to buy. It's easy for them to refer. It's easy for them to come back. So why is it that we still have leadership creating a divide-and-conquer type of approach. And we have an internal fighting being encouraged by leadership. Ego. Mostly, I think it's ego. It's ego. It's a lack of self-reflection. It's people not understanding how other people make decisions. It's thinking that, we're number one, thinking we're all rational, which we're not. It's, but I think a lot of it's down to simply blind ego. Okay. So that's this, this, the, the consistency thing. The consistency thing is very, very strong. The wonderful studies done, uh, Robert Caldini, the grandfather of persuasion and influence, the consistency thing. Once you've hung your hook, once you've hung your jacket on a hook, you're, you can't take it off. You'll lose face. And this failure, this failure to recognize that you need to lose face and that asking for help is a, is a power, not a weakness. Michael Brody Waite's book, Lead Like a Drug Addict, is a fantastic book on this. Uh, Michael was practically destitute. He was addicted to drugs. He was about to be thrown out on the street. His sponsor helped him. He got an interview at Dell, managed to turn his his life around, managed to grow very successfully, then ended up setting up his own business, ended up getting on television, massive spike in business, and suddenly realized he hadn't got a clue. And he was at the point of breaking... And he spoke to his team and said, look, hands up, drug addict, way out of my depth, help. And they did. And what was interesting was at that point, he understood the strength and the courage that it took him to be vulnerable was actually the thing that turned the business around. Because all of a sudden, he gave everyone else permission to chip in, to give discretionary effort, to be part of the whole process. And I think that's what great leaders do. They galvanize people behind a mission and a purpose. And everybody is willing to give massive discretionary effort because they really want it to work. And they don't want to let their people down. That's the small P purpose. You know, Dan, you talk about Dan Pink. 
Yeah. And he has the motivation for the things that drive us, right? The surprising truth about things that drive us is the subtitle of his book, right? And he talks about autonomy, talks about mastery and purpose. And the purpose he talks about is changing the world, doing the big thing. That's the capital P purpose. But the small P purpose is it's my mates. It's not letting people down. It's being there for them. It's wanting to get out of bed every morning because I want to work with these people. I want to be with these people. I want to work in company. We talk about organizations and all this sort of stuff. I like the word company because companions, compan comes from with bread. I break bread with people. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So again, historically, we've seen business and government and leadership and war machines take advantage of technology. How do we make sure that we find the right balance? Because technology and human beings in partnership are fantastic. But when we become over-reliant on the technology or on a particular dogma, then we start closing our minds. And um, I've seen that happen a lot. And one of the reasons why I think the tech market is going to take a really, really bad beating is because they, they haven't built companies. What they built are flippable assets that enable a few people to make a quick buck. And then the poor suckers who buy retail end up carrying the baby. And you look at the failures of mergers, acquisitions, all of those things. It's terrifying. I think, was it Datadog made six acquisitions? None of them have worked out. And today they're laying a quarter of their workforce off because they've made bad leadership decisions because they weren't trying to build a company of people who break bread together. They were trying to build something that they could flip. So how do you find that balance and how do you find how do you grow leaders who think like that, who think that actually we've got to put, create, we, we are renting this from the future? Sustainability is a word that's thrown about quite a lot, typically when you think about trees, oil. And when you think about businesses or companies, I think you have to bring, bring that to bear. You bring the idea that I'm trying to build something that is sustainable that will last longer than I am. And if you think that you are building something that is bigger than we are collectively, that in the company of people with whom I would like to break bread continually, we have a direction, a goal. Uh, we were on a journey together, all that sort of good stuff. And the money happens. If you're driven by the money, the rest of it will fall by the wayside. As you said, those, those pressures, when those pressures come to bear, you then see the truth behind the curtain. But if you're building from the ground up and you're building with those things in mind, then the money happens. Do the right things. Make friends. But that sounds all terribly utopian and a bit tree Too damn fluffy as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I look at the delusory uh, way that we run things. There's an industry in the US that generates a full billion dollars in tax revenue, but it generates $280 billion in social cost. Now, if we were rational beings, would we let that continue? And you look at in Mark Carney's book, Values, he cites two companies that generate $5 billion in revenues and individually generate $12 and $17 billion in natural disaster every year. And they're not even taxed on it. Now, 
if we were rational beings, we would challenge these things. And we do. But then there are people who have an emotional attachment that is so strong that it overrides reason. And I see this in business. I see in business people hang on to old ways, the stuff that made me successful. And this is always reminds me why we need to study history. The French generals, after World War I, prepared for the last war and they built the Maginot Line, and the Germans drove around it because <laughs> they were expecting a frontal assault, and they hadn't ever considered they might drive through Belgium. Now, that kind of thinking is precisely what is holding businesses back nowadays. So in terms of a, a roadmap for the future, a way of opening leaders' minds to what's possible, that better future, what advice would you give them? What questions would you ask them to ask so they become more self-aware? Three things I look for pretty much in anybody when I'm hiring, but specifically in leadership roles are courage, curiosity, and coachability. Helpfully, it's the three Cs. Courage, curiosity, and coachability. And I think that you're saying we need people to have the courage to ask the difficult questions. You need them to have the curiosity to listen to the answers and the coachability to help them to change their mind and change mid-flight when they find out that something's not perhaps working the way they would hope. What the roadmap is from there, I'm not entirely sure that I have an answer for that. I think perhaps my role is to help other people find out what that is. And the process for doing that? The process for building a roadmap. I'm stumped. Okay, well, let's work on it together because yeah. it's helpful. If we're clear about the job that the customer wants to get done, that requires us to have a good understanding of our customer, who they are, why they buy, the problems that they have that they want to have solved, yeah. and the better future that they're hoping to create for themselves. Now, in order to do that, we have to put in the heavy lifting. We've got to really put in some thought into understanding who our customer is, what job they're trying to get done, what progress they're making along that journey, what their struggling moments are, um, where they need help in those moments of peril. And then from there, what else do we need? Well, how are you going to fix that? Once you understood what the customer, who, who they are and what their problem is, what yeah. are they doing already to fix it without you? How can you make that better? You then bring your solution to bear. At the you same time, idea. we also need to make sure that we've checked what they've already tried and mm -hmm. did it work? Because are we going down a blind alley or are we going to repeat what they've already tried and we're going to end up stepping on a landmine? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the process of pulling all that together, what do we get at the end of it? Ideally, okay. we get something that people are willing to spend money on. Ideally, it's a problem that people are willing to prioritize Okay. Because it's all, it's all business is about today, as you said, it's prioritization. It's not, I don't have a budget for this or whatever, it's prioritization over other things. Is this a problem people are willing to prioritize? Can we solve it for a reasonable cost? And can we do something? And what is that cost? Is that cost environmental? Is it monetary? As you said, yes, I can generate whatever it is, but I happen to pollute, pollute three lakes a, a week. It's not a good trade-off. And then how, what's the underpinning of what I need to provide that solution? What, how, who do I need? 
as you said, what, what are the what are the assets that I need? I'd go one step just before we decide on who, which is what is the function, and what what did what are the sub jobs that the people in those roles need to get done? Yes, yeah, sorry, the, the role the the role yeah. responsible. Yeah. Then I can draw on the people, and it may be that it's one, or it may be more than one person, or I may need to bring someone in from outside because at that point, I think one of the reasons why I see projects fail is that they put someone with tenure in instead of someone with talent. And I want to make sure that the right person is leading that bit of the project and they have the authority, whether whatever their job title, to get that job done. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, another really important point in terms of uh, establishing the ground rules and the roles, responsibilities, and the escalation procedures. This is really interesting. I wish we had more time because this could be quite an interesting line of discussion. Okay, so we've identified the the functions. We've identified the people. Uh, Then we need to uncover budgets uh, because presumably at some point we're going to have to find the money to pay for it and hire these people in or bring in these resources. So what then? So presumably some kind of plan. So who are the people that we need to build the plan? Now, this is interesting because I'm pretty sure at this point you go to your peers or you go to the people who are the heads of the department, not necessarily going to the people who are right in the uh, sharp end of the stick. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, if anyone's listening and you've got thoughts on this, then feel free to pile in because this is still a work in progress. So after we've done not, that... Not an easy, it's not an easy thing we're trying to do here. It, it's not. Well, the, the, the thing I really like about all of this is it is difficult. It forces us to think. Given that we've only got about 10 minutes left, we're not going to uh, finish this now. But I think this is a discussion that uh, we should probably go into more depth in and maybe record and put out as uh, something separate. A bad idea. And get a few others uh, in on it as well. Then I've got some folks in mind that could be quite an interesting uh, debate. Um, okay, so wrapping up then, let's think about your advice Going back and whispering in the idiot Paul's ear, age 23, you were a stupid 20-something. What one bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored? Definitely ignored. Well, num- number one, I think, as, as an avid consumer of wonderful sci- science fiction, <laughs> I'd be very, very wary of disturbing the space-time continuum. <laughs> so, of that, I think I would be very cautious of doing <laughs> I'd be very cautious, cautious of uh, breaking into the past. <laughs> what would I advise Paul to do that he probably wouldn't? Study people more, persuasion and psychology more. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a linguist by training. So I have a interestingly useful-ish mm-hmm. master's degree in Scandinavian studies. Yeah, very helpful. It's, yeah, good fun. Great fun yeah. to do. But I think... Persuasion psychology. That's what I've that's what I would point Paul at doing more. And if I, I did, in a way, I had nothing but a series of general public-facing jobs in my uh, youth. I was working in theaters selling ice creams and programs and all sorts of stuff in front of the general public in bars. And that's the best way to learn people. You see them in the raw, in yeah. the flesh. <laughs> when their guard is down. Absolutely. Very interesting. Okay, so what content would you recommend people consume? I'm guessing influenced by Robert Cialdini. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think the, the one thing that I would recommend to most people, I've, I've probably got a couple of copies in my bookshelf behind me here. It's one of the ones I give away. Uh, it's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's been in print since 1936 for a reason. You know, it's there. On, it's, it's, it's the core of the idea that people are not rational, but they rationalize. They desire to be important. They desire to be heard. I think and they crave to be noticed. I think that's that's uh, the best thing I could recommend anybody reads ever. Start there. It's great advice. I mean, become a, stu- a student of human behavior and in particular, become more self-aware. If there was one bit of advice I wish I'd received sooner and paid heed to, it's just become aware that you're not breaking the Jimmy Carr rule. Jimmy has a rule, which is if you meet three beep, beep, beeps, by 12 o'clock, you're the beep. And he's absolutely on the money. Don't be a twat. That's the first law of human you know, living in this, uh, with the species. It goes, it goes to not lying. It goes to integrity. It goes to all that. It's, don't be an ass. Don't be a jerk. We all are at some time, t- times in our lives. Just try not to do it every damn day. <laughs> and make, make amends fast. When you realize you're screwing up, then fix it. Okay, how can people get hold of you? The ubiquitous is LinkedIn, of course, Paul W. Morton on LinkedIn, and at practical-leadership.academy. Okay, one final question then, um, and this is a biggie. Given all of the uncertainty that's going on, what, what do you fear? At this very moment, I think I fear that one of my children get ill or get hurt and not be able to get help. Well, Okay. So again, given that that's something very real and very present for you, I suspect there are many people out there who have that amygdala on the hair trigger um, because of worry for our families and so on. How is that affecting decision-making? How is that affecting uh, the way people are behaving in work in difficult times? Making everything a lot more short-term and making everything worse, unfortunately. And it's a bit gloomy, but I think the the situation we are in requires long-term thinking and long-term solutions. It was this Napoleonic thing. He's marching down the streets and he says, this street would better have trees on one side to shelter my soldiers as they march. But emperor, say the generals, it will take many years for the trees to grow. Better start today, he says. <laughs> so these long-term solutions that we need, unfortunately, are causing us to have to react in short-term ways, scrabbling almost, as you were saying uh, earlier on, people thinking quarter by quarter rather than thinking 18 months, two years down the line. In some cases, cases like energy, 10 years down the line. It, it should have been building be. nuclear power plants 20 years ago. <laughs> There's a, a wonderful expression, I can't remember whether it was Socrates or Confucius, one of them, probably neither. It says, uh, you can see how far a society has evolved when men plant trees knowing that they will never benefit from the shade that they sit under. And I think we've, we need more leadership that takes, has the courage to think longer term. And what's interesting is you only have to weather about six to 18 months of difficult time when these things start to make good. Because if you focused on that midterm pipeline, your short-term pipeline problem goes away and it's far more resilient when you hit tough times. In two years' time, we are going into the election fever, 
both in the US and the UK. Over those two years, the level of disruption on the internet being perpetrated by bots and other things will be crazy. So the turmoil is only going to get worse. We're going into the worst recession in history predicted to hit at its worst around 24. Meanwhile, we've got two years of declining into it. And we also have this um, very unstable geopolitical situation with a massive shift in power. So we need to get together. And there are a few of us who are doing it, Paul, myself, and a few others. If you're interested in being part of that, then please get in contact. We have a group called Sales of Force for Good, which is really committed to creating a better future for the next generation of both sellers and sales leaders and managers. And they are providing the resources, the support that you need, the mentorship, in order that you can create a better future for the generations that follow. So if you're into that sort of thing, then please do get in touch. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. DM me on LinkedIn and also check out my Hiring Winners program, which is launching in the 4th of October, 2022. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.